Shall we begin? Let's begin now. Hi, this is Delisa Milton Jones, and you're listening to Dishing and Splitting. Hey everybody, it's David Siegel welcoming you to the WNBA Final Game 5 podcast. We've got a couple of them for you this week that we're going to run and we're going to get it started right now with the man that's been calling the games, the play-by-play man from ESPN, and that is Ryan Rucco. Ryan, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Getting excited for Game 5. Well, Ryan, the first thing i got to tell you is, now, I had gone out on Twitter and I had said that, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we had announcers doing women's basketball that just were not as up to par as they needed to be, and we really need to be appreciative of the job that you and Rebecca and, of course, LaChina Robinson and Holly all do. And now I know that I was right because I got crap from Sparks fans saying you were so biased from Minnesota, and I got crap from Lynx fans telling me you were so biased from the Sparks. So isn't that the sign of a good a good game call is when everybody's mad at you? It, it so is. You know, I mean, nobody deals with that more than Joe Buck, who I think is as good a play-by-play guy as there is on the planet. And um, I saw some of those responses as well, uh, which, first of all, I appreciate your, your kind words because I love our broadcast team, and I do think, uh, you know, we put a lot of heart and energy into into the WNBA, but I, I crack up at that because it's so true. Like, that's what you want is you want both sides to feel that way because uh, then you know you are uh, properly towing the line down the center. And obviously, on a serious note, the reality is Rebecca, Holly, LaChina, and I don't care who wins at all. What we care about is it being uh, a great product to represent the league, we care about, you know, both teams playing well, giving us good entertaining games, us having a great broadcast, and, uh, you know, the sport being showcased well, and, and us doing our best to, to showcase the sport from a broadcast standpoint. But it, it's, you know, I, we've all been there, right? Like when you're, when you're a fan and, and, and you're, a, you're a passionate fan and something doesn't go your way, you're like, who can I blame? And, uh, you know, right after the refs come the broadcasters. <laughs> well, let, let's let's talk a little bit about the refs then. Since you brought them up, I was going to bring them later, but let's discuss that. <laughs> now, now every there's always complaints about officials in every sport. You know, we see it all the time, of course, in the NFL and stuff. But, you know, the, the league came out and admitted they blew the eight-second call that resulted in Minnesota – getting Brunson open for that short bank shot that pretty much iced the game. You know, the officiating itself is something that's always a problem, but, you know, in general, do you feel that they do about as good as they can do here? Is there something that needs to be done to improve on that type of thing? I mean, both you and Rebecca are pretty good about calling out the mistakes when you see them. Yeah. I I mean, I I think that um, as the – the play is elevated in this league, you know, the officiating has to along with it as well. And, um, you know, I think for the most part, um, you know, it has steadily improved. Uh, I think there have been a couple, um, you know, low points during the postseason for the officiating. Um, the, uh, the game between Phoenix and Minnesota with uh, an untallyable amount of free throws was, you know, Gasly, 
Um, but uh, I think for the most part in these finals, the officials have done a pretty good job. I also I do really like Don Vaden, who's uh, overseeing uh, the officials, and he's he's very responsive and communicative, and he cares deeply um, about this product and and the officials getting it right. Uh, so I think that that bodes well for you know continuing improvement. I think the you know when I look at these finals, the only real issue. Um, I would have out of the officiating these finals is, uh, you know, game game four and the end of that game. Um, you know, the, the eight-second violation, which was, uh, you know, a, a very poor mistake um, and, and obviously a potentially costly one for L.A. And then also I think down on the other end, I'm not sure Candace Parker fouled Rebecca Brunson and L.A. would have controlled the ball then down to with 12 seconds left or whatever it is. Um, but – for the most part, I think they've been pretty good in the finals. Like, to me, th- those were the only calls that kind of were a story from these finals, you know, whereas, like, the game two between Phoenix and Minnesota, that was like, you don't want the officials being that much a part of the story. I think for the most part, the officials have been able to let the players showcase their abilities. And even in game four, I thought it was, you know, the officiating was not really a story save for, the, uh, the the final calls, which were you know bad mistakes, but um, I, I guess in in large part, I think throughout the postseason they've acquitted themselves pretty well. You know, the league did release that statement yesterday that said yes, they made a mistake. You know, in your opinion, is that a good thing that the league steps up and does that, or should, and, and just says okay, we admit the mistake? I mean, that sort of you know, with, with social media being the way it is, that then fanned the fires that were starting to die down before Game 5. Right. You know, I, I'm not sure which way I feel about that, whether it's nice for the league to say, you know, okay, you know, we're going to be transparent, we made, the mis- we made the mistake, we're admitting the mistake, or if it would have been better to just let it go away. You know, I, I believe in the transparency because I think that, Everybody sees exactly what's going on, you know. I, I like we, we can all pretend that that didn't happen, and I know a lot of people immediately on Twitter and people I respect are like, "No, it's not an eight-second violation. The clock has to turn to 15." But as Rebecca and I knew, and then you know later explained in in the WNBA, it just it's 16 for an eight-second violation because the WNBA shot clock does not have tenths of a second, whereas the NBA shot clock does. Um, and that's why in the NBA it has to hit clear 16 and hit 15-9. Um, but I don't – I think that it's still – there's still value in just being honest, right? Like putting your head in the sand and saying, like, oh, well, you know, it's not going to do anything now. Like, yeah, we understand you're not going to go back and change the end of the game. We all get that. But I still think it's better to be honest about what happened than to not admit it at all because – no matter what, the result's the same, right? No matter what, they're not going back and replaying that at the end of the game. No matter what, that's still a win for Minnesota, and it very well may have been regardless of that call. Um, but the only thing that's different is are you going to be transparent, or are you going to be honest, or are you not? So I'm always in favor of it because no matter what, the result's not going to change. So I think you might as well let the people know that you understand what happened rather than acting like you don't. Makes a lot of sense. That's a really good point. All right, so let's get back to the stuff that matters, and we'll get to, to the players and the game coming up. And, you know, now there's been some exceptional talent on both sides of the court, some great plays from all different parts. 
you know, it certainly appeared that in game four, the poison experience in the postseason of the Minnesota Stars versus the inexperience in postseason play for the Spark Stars might have come into play. Uh, was that a, was that the case? Did LA just start to feel the pressure a little bit, and will that carry forward, or was it just you know one of those games where you know maybe it was the opposite? And you did you, you know in your opinion, maybe LA took Minnesota for granted in that last game. No, you know I, I think it's a it's a good question, right? And um, and Brian Agler brought up poise, and uh, and that being a difference, he said you know he liked the energy from his team, he liked their fight. He just thought that, you know, they weren't quite as poised as a team who's been there, done that, like the Minnesota Lynx have. And, and I think there are a couple of possessions that sort of exemplify that. You know, when the uh, Sparks tied it up after that Candace Parker runner, I don't know, I want to say maybe it was like six minutes left, um, and then they got a stop, and they're coming down the other end, and I believe it was Christy Tolliver. Yeah, they chucked who, the three. Try, well, no, that was later. Oh, okay. Was, she tried to force a pass. Oh, yeah, it was. Yes, it was Tolliver that tried to put it into Kansas in the low yeah, post. Yeah, and, and it ended up with Maya Moore throwing a beautiful outlet pass to Lindsey Whalen for a layup. And then next time down the floor, again, uh, L.A. tried to force something, turned it over, and Lindsey Whalen hit that uh, crazy runner in the lane to put Minnesota up four. You know, there was poise on the break in the chaos for Moore and Whalen. There was almost not being able to handle the hot potato from L.A. after they had taken all the momentum and the building was up for grabs and they had a chance to take the lead. Suddenly they were back down four again. And then the other example I think is exactly what you're talking about. L.A. bounces back. They cut it back to two. They have the ball with a chance to take the lead with one minute and three seconds to go. And Christy Tolliver takes an inexplicable shot, you know, leaning uh, early in the shot clock without a lot of space at all and predictably misses it, and that was, as it turned out, L.A.'s best chance to take the lead in that final minute. Again, and, and Tolliver has a little bit of that in their, her game, so you don't want to stunt her completely, but, like, that's not a time for a heat check, you know? And I think that having been in that situation before, you kind of understand not to play towards the crowd building, but instead to execute your offense. And in that moment... It seemed as if Christie was giving in to what was a frenzied crowd with a minute to go sensing that L.A. could take the lead. And I think that's the area where the poise comes into play. I do think it'll help L.A. a little bit to have gone through that now in game four where they won't have to worry about never having felt those emotions like you feel with a championship on the line in a tight game late because now they have felt that. So I think that will serve them a little bit in game five. No, I think the part of that also is a little bit of the square peg in the round hole thing in that Brian has done a great job, and Christy has been great all season, in handling the ball and playing more of a point guard position, as opposed to, of course, Lindsay is a point guard. There's no question mm-hmm. about that. L.A. has been functioning with you know, Candace running the point at times and Christy doing that. You know, Christie tries to force the ball inside. Lindsay knows how to get the ball in there or be patient and pull it back out. Uh, you know, then you, you get the situation where you have the natural point guard in L.A. with Chelsea Gray, but then Chelsea starts hitting her shots, and now all of a sudden you've got NECA and Candace not getting touches. 
So, yeah, it seems like there's a little bit of that square peg in the round hole thing that's hurting L.A. there. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. You know, I mean, they don't they don't have the truest of point guards, right? Um, and, but but they're loaded with talent. Um, and the the reality is, you know, at the end of the game when you need a bucket in postseason basketball, whether it's WNBA or NBA, you do want to have a guard who can either go get it or control the show, right? And and LA's best playmaker in that sense is actually Candace Parker, um, and uh, and that's where she's a little different than your typical big. And I think it's one area where you know she has an advantage over Neca as far as being a late game option because Neca's not creating for herself per se, right? Like she can she can hit shots. You know, if you if you overplay her from 15 feet, she can definitely go by you. She can clean things up on the glass. But you're not going to give Neck of the ball, you know, uh, beyond the arc and say, hey, somehow get your way to the hoop. Whereas Candace Parker can do that. And I think that, you know, what L.A. needs is Candace Parker a little more insistent on that um, throughout the game and even late in the game. And also, uh, you know, from a more general standpoint, the only way the Sparks win this is with Neck and Candace playing great. I think we've pretty much seen that throughout these playoffs, right? When they win, those two have excellent games. And just look at the difference between games three and four and put it on display. Or look at the fact that in the three losses L.A. has this postseason, Candace has averaged under 10 points a game, and in all their wins, she's averaging over, I believe, 24 points a game. So they need to, whatever it is that keeps the motor going for Candace and the aggressiveness and keeps NECA shooting, they need to get the, both of those things going because you can't have NECA taking only 10 shots and you can't have Candace hanging on the perimeter for the first three quarters of the game. Otherwise, they're going to have a really tough time because, as you say, they don't have a guard who can just control the offense the way that, say, Minnesota does. Okay, so based on what you said now, we all talked about after the last game that Parker has to get her – self down low, especially when Maya's trying to cover her. But if she's the best option to run the offense as well, it's difficult to find that happy medium where she's up top, where she gets the ball and doesn't have to stand there waiting and then can execute versus standing up there and waiting around and they don't get her the ball and then nothing happens. You're 100% right. And I think that the point is if she is controlling the offense um, up beyond the arc, off a rebound, let's say, right, where, you know, she's kind of in motion and, and helping make, um, you know, kind of making decisions on the fly, but her team is in motion, I think that's when she's most effective. When Candace is just holding it at the top of the key, you know, it is a little bit harder for her. Unless the floor is completely uh, and perfectly spaced, then she can usually take whatever big is trying to hang with her off the dribble because, you know, she is uh, more fleet of foot than most of the bigs who, who try and guard her. But, I, I mean, I think that's, that's it, though. It is a happy medium, right? Like, I mean, it shouldn't be one or the other. Candace needs to keep moving without the ball, keep cutting, needs to position herself on the block and take Maya down there. Her teammates need to make sure she gets the ball when she's in those situations. But Candace also has to be in some situations where, She's not just predictably getting to the block every time, but she's also pulling whoever is guarding her out of the paint and 
being able to make some decisions on the perimeter or getting out in transition and leading the break and being what Brian Agler calls the option quarterback in transition for them. So I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's what you're saying, a balance. And that's kind of based on flow, right? Like you don't want – Candace Parker can do everything. I think she Maya Moore is the best player in the WNBA, but Candace Parker may be the most talented player in the NBA. And you want her displaying all of those talents. And uh, I think that the key there, more so than where she is on the floor, is just making sure she's always involved. Some of that's on her teammates and some of that's on her to make sure she stays in it and focused and motivated throughout the entire game. Because as she admitted, when she went back and watched the five meetings that she had had with Minnesota prior to game four, regular season and playoff, excuse me, prior to game three, she was like, you know, aghast at her performance. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like not asserting my will. Well, game three she did. Then for whatever reason in game four she went back. And I think the officials got in her head a little bit because Natasha Howard was allowed to be like very, very, very physical with Candace. Um, and uh, that's probably the reason why that's the first time that you saw Natasha Howard play effective minutes in this series. Um, but, you know, it's on her to, to not let herself get out of her game when something like that happens. That's a big thing for L.A. period with the referees. I think they have to get, not let the referees get in their heads, and they have to stay focused. I mean, you see a lot of stomping around and then pouting afterwards from calls with the Sparks. You may see Minnesota, and particularly Brunson, will show her emotions when she gets called against something, but then two seconds later it's, okay, it's over, let's get back to business. Uh, one thing that is interesting to me is we talk, we're talking about how Parker has to inflict her will in this series. You know, it, on the other side of the court, it, it's similar in the fact that Maya goes with the flow, does whatever is needed, helps everybody else, and then in Game 4, much like Candace in Game 3, Game 4, Maya said, okay, I think I'll just win this one. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. I mean, Ma- Ma- Maya has that ability, and we have seen that throughout the playoffs at different moments where, you know, she just takes over a game. She, you know, she too has been a little bit, you know, she, she's been a little bit in and out of making plays for herself in this series. But when she makes plays for herself, her team, I do believe, is at its best. And I thought maybe the, uh, the most telling part of game four was every time Maya went to the bench, L.A. would go on a little rush. It was like, you know, Maya would go out for one minute, L.A. would go on a 4-0 run. Maya would go out for two minutes, L.A. would go on an 8-2 run. You know, they, literally, Cheryl Reeve tried to steal 45 seconds of a break before uh, the first media timeout in the fourth quarter, and she put her on the bench, and immediately 4-0 L.A., she had to pop Maya more back into the game. So, I, I mean, it, it, I don't know if, if Candace has her will going and Maya has her will going, I don't know who, which team ends up coming out on top because a lot of other things have to uh, come into play. But they are both certainly capable of taking a game over and, and winning the game for them, their team. The game I think about with Candace, where that was uh, most exemplified this year, was the, the second half of the game she played after Pat Summitzot, who was so close to her. And um, I, I believe she had 23 points in the second half and like five assists and just clearly – took over the game and decided, we are winning this game. And uh, with Maya, you know, we've seen her put up huge numbers in a, in a single half. You know, it's not uncommon for her to put up over 30 in a half in, in, in a game. So I think that 
it's great when you have two players who are capable of that. It's a little easier for Maya to do because, obviously, as good as Candace is with the ball in her hands, Maya is slightly more adept at it. But, um, but both of those players are definitely capable of winning games for their team just with their insistence on bringing energy every single play. The, you know, and what seems to be uh, a game difference uh, is the rebounding in the series. You know, it, it's funny because what I hadn't realized is, you know, over the course of the season, you know, you look at L.A. and you look at the size, you know, they have the big lineup they can bring in with Lavender, plus you know that Elena can rebound and Carson isn't too bad either. I didn't realize until I was doing my homework for this game that, you know, Minnesota was third in the league in rebounding, and L.A. was third to last in the league in rebounding. Yeah. So it's not yeah. – I guess we really shouldn't be that surprised that Minnesota had such control of the rebounding uh, edge in game four, and somehow L.A.'s got to figure out how to keep Sylvia Fowles off of those boards. Well, it's interesting. So when we met with Cheryl Reeves before the start of the series, she said, look, when you get to this point – um, it's about players making plays. It's not so much about schemes. And she was, and we, we, we talked to her before Phoenix. She was incredibly confident in her team. And, and her reason for the confidence was she didn't believe Phoenix could defend like Minnesota can defend. And she said, look at our defenses all year. You know, you don't suddenly go from being, you know, the 10th defensive efficiency team to the first in the playoffs. You know, and we've been the first all year. They've, they've struggled. They've struggled, and they've been, uh, you know, around around 10. When it came to this series, we said, is there anything that gives you, like, a distinct advantage? And she said, offenses are close, defenses are close. The only area I think we have a clear-cut edge is rebounding. Um, she didn't seem to think that was going to determine the series, but that was the one area where Cheryl Reed felt very confident that Minnesota would have an edge just based on what both teams did all year. And for the most part in this series, we've seen that play out. You know, L.A. was, uh, I believe, a minus 22 on the glass through the first two games. It may have been a little larger than that, but I think it was a minus 22 through the first two games. Um, and then in game three, they won the battle on the glass, largely due to what they were able to do in the first quarter on the offensive glass. Um, and then game four, they got slaughtered on the glass by Minnesota and lost. So I, I think that for L.A., you know, Brian Agler has even admitted, like, look, we're not all of a sudden going to become a good rebounding team, but we just need to be a little more competitive on the glass. We need to be a little more aggressive. We saw that. You could clearly see that in game three. You could clearly see that didn't exist in game four. So for L.A., I don't think it's about, you know, their guards all of a sudden diving in for rebounds on the offensive glass because then Minnesota's going to get out and run and they'll end up with even more fast break points than they had in game four. But I think what it is about is the guards helping on defense to keep Minnesota off the offensive glass. And, and it's also about just keeping those motors on. As Cheryl Reeves said after game three, there was a want to from NECA and Candace from jump. And you need that want to from both of them all game long on the glass as much as anywhere else. Well, they're playing in the target center where three of the last of the five game fives have been won by the home team. And the other things, the other stat that goes against that this year is that, you know, game three and game two were the only teams won by the home team between these two, between these two all season. Uh, 
Yeah. Right. So, so what kind of impact does a greened out target center have on this game? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, the target center is uh, and has been our most consistent atmosphere in this league. Um, you always know that the crowd is going to be fantastic, um, and uh, and they are knowledgeable fans who uh, who give the Minnesota players a great deal of comfort. I was talking about it with Maya Moore a few days ago, and her just raving about the atmosphere that the fans create for them on a consistent basis. However, as much as it is absolutely an advantage for Minnesota, I don't think it is the worst thing for L.A. to be on the road for a couple of reasons. One, as you mentioned, they've had success here this year, where a lot of teams have not. Two, I think there is a different kind of pressure with trying to close out games in front of a huge crowd that's rooting for you than that's rooting against you when you're a team that hasn't done it. And if you think about it from a spark standpoint, right, like, they have not played in front of amazing crowds all year. They, they kind of have, you know, they have decent crowds in, in L.A. for the most part. Then all of a sudden, they get to Staples for a closeout game, and you've got Kobe Bryant and Cedric the Entertainer and, you know, a, uh, a bunch of celebrities who are there on hand, sitting courtside and whatever. And you had an incredible atmosphere, a jammed-up place, which, you know, maybe in some ways helped them and sparked them as they're trying to get back in the game. But maybe it also creates a, a little different pressure, too, than when you're going in trying to, um, you know, be the spoilers rather than uh, do what you're supposed to do. And I also think that this group kind of has had a noticeable chip on its shoulder all season long and likes to play off defying the odds or swiping back. If you think about it, it kind of was laid down for the foundation of the year when Candace and NECA, more specifically Candace, didn't make the Olympic team, right? And, you know, they've kind of carried that chip on their shoulder all year. They weren't the team being picked before the year. That was Minnesota. That was Phoenix. Um, so I think that it sort of fits their narrative to now be on the road trying to accomplish this Herculean feat, winning at the home of maybe the the – I guess you'd say the second greatest dynasty this league has seen with Houston being the first in their four straight titles. So I think it fits L.A.'s narrative. I think it also helps Minnesota to be home simply because they have so much success there. Um, but I, uh, if it was another team, I think it would be maybe more costly for them to be on the road in this case than L.A. With L.A., I wonder if it might help them a little bit just to not be home trying to clinch the title. Makes a lot of sense. It'll be fun to watch, that's for sure. So, Ryan, when it gets into a situation like these games, how, long, how much time do you spend? Do you have to spend preparing to get ready for these things? Tell everybody when you're when you arrive in Minnesota, say for a game five, and you know what the, what you have to do to get ready. Other than everybody knows about looking for the perfect pillow. <laughs> that's right, and never finding it. Um, I. Uh... I mean, I would say that, you know, your, your preparation always starts um, long before you get to the city you're going to um, for a game. But my preparation doesn't really change whether it's game five of this series or it's, uh, you know, a preseason game um, that I'm doing for the Brooklyn Nets. Like, no matter what you are – I mean, obviously there are certain little things that would change as far as the information you are uh, accumulating – 
Um, but like the way you are preparing and the way you're going about your business is the same in that you can only broadcast, I believe, if you are totally and fully prepared because that's the only way you can just go perform. It's no different than a, um, an actor in a play knowing their lines so that they can just go perform, right? If you don't know your lines, you're going to be thinking. You're not going to be able to just perform. If you don't have your homework done in play-by-play, you're going to be thinking and you are not going to be able to just perform. The difference with a series is, you know, most of the, the, the little nuggets and, you know, the players' games and the storylines, you know, because you've been, you've been piling them up and accumulating them throughout the series, you know. So the key is in the days, you know, between games four and five, let's say, you know, reading all the articles, reading all the stories, reading any new quotes that emerge, um, and, uh, and then figuring out in your head, you know, kind of like what's been the difference in the series, what are the storylines to keep track of, you know, what kind of brings everything full circle, going back through your notes and seeing what's been brought up throughout the year. Like, I, I remember the first Minnesota game we did this year, Cheryl Reeves talking to us about how this group deserves a repeat. You know, this is a, this is one of the great groups in WNBA history. They've never had a repeat before. They deserve to know what it feels like to repeat, and we're going to own that. And that's one of the things she said to her team right off the jump of the season. You know, I'm like, you know what? That's a good thing to bring back now as they're on the brink of accomplishing that. So that's something that, you know, will probably come up at some point in the telecast, uh, tomorrow. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's organizing really more than researching at this point because you have most of your research done, but you want everything as at the tips of your fingers as possible so that you're not searching for things. If there's a number that you want to be on top of that you can't find during the course of this game, you want to have everything you need right there at your fingertips. Um, so it's kind of like sequencing, organizing, and when you get to the actual city, you know, you tomorrow will go to shoot-arounds, we'll talk to uh, Brian Aglin in the morning with we'll Cheryl Reeve before tip. We'll talk to some players to shoot around, and then we'll sit down. Rebecca, Holly, and me. We'll have a pre-production meeting with everyone uh, in the morning, but then we'll have a Rebecca, Holly, and me. will actually sit down and go through our storylines together, where we think Holly can add going into a game, and then adjust as the game goes. But you know, the good news with the game five is that um, it's really more about organizing and staying on top of any new quotes or stories than it is doing a ton of research because a lot of your research, you know, is has already been done. Now it's about kind of combing through everything and finding out what matters for this game specifically and what has been a difference so far in this particular series. Well, it sounds like uh, you guys are certainly on top of things. There's no question about that. Now, the last question I have for you is, now, you are a baseball guy. I know that. So you are so you are used to this wild card one game thing. Uh, so now that we've ha- we, we got the end result that everybody wanted with the new playoffs, and that was the two best teams playing, and we've gotten a very good series out of it. But you know, I've said all along since the start of the season, I would have even sacrificed the first the the last two playoff teams if it meant that I got to see the second round two out of three. What did you think of the uh, the one and done aspects of not so much the first round, but you know we had a situation where New York loses, then we had a situation where Chicago played a great game, but perhaps and beat Atlanta, but maybe Atlanta would have been a better series with Deladon hurt. What, what did you think of the new playoff structure? 
So uh, I think, you know, the team that is tough for is if there's like a, a three seed who's way better than everyone behind them, like the case was with New York for much of this year. As it turned out, because they were hurt at the end of the year, they weren't that team anymore. But if, let's say, they had gone through, let's say they ended up with 24 wins, right? They they obviously didn't. But let's say they finished with 24 wins, but they were the three seed because L.A. and Minnesota just happened to have amazing years. And then they play one game and they happen to lose because Phoenix was hot, whatever. You know, that's kind of unfortunate because you're like, wait a second, this team played an amazing season and they only get one playoff game. But what I like about it, is it creates incredible excitement for those one-game playoffs. We know that, right? But it also creates more import for the regular season. And I know talking to the teams all year long, they felt the weight of that. They felt more weight in each individual regular season game than they ever have before, and I believe that is in large part due to the new playoff format and wanting to avoid those one-game playoffs. So in that sense, I like it because it keeps the pressure on. I also think... You know, from a business standpoint, too, the league, I think, is very realistic about always wanting to provide more entertainment, right? And it is, it's it's an entertainment business. And so is this format more entertaining? I think almost universally you'd say it was, even if in some cases the first and second rounds are less fair. But the way you mitigate the fair worry is saying, hey, you don't want to play in one of those games? Have a better regular season. So... I wouldn't mind having uh, the second round be three games, um, depending on when the season's starting, because I think going this deep into October is not good um, for the league. But I, and obviously that's a proxy Olympic break, but I kind of, I kind of loved it, man. I really did. I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic um, in creating, uh, you know, drama within those games because so often. I find in these first-round series, like, you know, it's a fait accompli, and, you know, when you have one play eight, it's like, all right, you know, we know it's going to happen, or one play four in each conference. In this case, it felt like, you know, there were a lot of games that you didn't know what was going to happen. I think that creates more drama, more excitement. Great description of it. Ryan, I want to thanks for, thank you for taking time. I know you're heading out to, to Minnesota for Game 5. We're looking forward to hearing the call from you and Rebecca, and hopefully you'll piss off the fans from both teams again. <laughs> <laughs> if we if we do our jobs, we will. Just know, whoever whoever loses the title uh, will be blaming us, regardless of the team and the refs. <laughs> yes, that's, that's right, and the refs first. What? But I think it should be a, a great display of basketball, and I know we're really excited about what the product is going to be like based on what we saw in uh, in Game Four. And, you know, since you have to be Switzerland, I'm even going to let you off the hook and not ask for a winner. So <laughs> That's right. I do. I do. I, 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 and you know what? To be honest, I don't even have a feel for who I think is going to win this game, which is a good sign because I, that means I think that these two teams are, are evenly matched and we've gotten what we wanted all year, so I'm excited about it. Great. Ryan, thanks again for taking the time. Enjoy the call, and it's been great having you cover the WNBA this season, and we look forward to many more years of it. Always appreciate the support, Dave. Thanks so much.